Welcome to Page, the podcast where writers dissect a single page of their book. I'm your host, Abby Hollick, and each week I'll be speaking to a different best-selling memoirist or non-fiction writer about their most frank, moving, or hilarious page. I pick the standout page that examines a breakthrough moment and invite the author to dig deeper. Along the way, we learn a thing or two about how to survive and cope with whatever life flings at us. Oliver Berkman is the author of The Antidote, Happiness for People Who Can't Stand Positive Thinking. For many years, he wrote my favourite column in The Guardian on psychology. It was called This Column Will Change Your Life. Today, we're talking about his latest book, the New York Times bestselling 4,000 Weeks, Time and How to Use It. 4,000 weeks is roughly 80 years, so with a bit of luck, many of us will have 4,000 weeks of life. The central question of the book is how do we make those weeks count? Or, put another way, how do we stop work stress, distractions and anxiety about the future from destroying the present moment? With a little help from great philosophers, artists and psychologists, Oliver offers up a liberating approach to time. Ultimately, reject the cult of busyness and the modern obsession with getting everything done, and accept that we have limited time and will fail sometimes. Oliver, a self-confessed productivity geek, wakes up to the fact that that day, the day we're all waiting on when our inbox is empty, the house is decluttered, and the endless to-do list is finished, that day is never coming. However, there's no need to despair by embracing this fact and refusing to cram in all of the things all of the time. You free yourself up to focus on what matters, And as a bonus, you will hopefully feel less anxious and overwhelmed. Oliver, thank you for coming on page. Uh, It's my pleasure. Thank you very much for asking me. Well, I feel that you have written your book just for me because (laughs) (laughs) every kind of aspect of this type of anxiety um, really speaks to my experience personally. And then I forced my husband to read it and he's quite (laughs) different to me. And I wanted to know what it was like to read it if you're not someone who's bothered with a to-do list and getting things done. And that was quite interesting. We had loads of (laughs) conversations around that. But anyway, I have picked page 126 of 4,000 Weeks um, because, yeah, it does sum up a specific feeling. Uh, Yeah, I've selfishly picked it because it does sum up a specific feeling I experience on a daily basis. So if you could read that page, that would be wonderful. Sure, happily. In his book, Back to Sanity... The psychologist Steve Taylor recalls watching tourists at the British Museum in London who weren't really looking at the Rosetta Stone, the ancient Egyptian artefact on display in front of them, so much as preparing to look at it later by recording images and videos of it on their phones. So intently were they focused on using their time for a future benefit, for the ability to revisit or share the experience later on, that they were barely experiencing the exhibition itself at all. And whoever watches most of those videos anyway... Of course, grumbling about younger people's smartphone habits is a favourite pastime of middle-aged curmudgeons like Taylor and me, but his deeper point is that we're all frequently guilty of something similar. We treat everything we're doing, life itself in other words, as valuable only insofar as it lays the groundwork for something else. This future-focused attitude often takes the form of what I once heard described as the when I finally mind, as in when I finally get my workload under control or get my candidate elected, find the right romantic partner or sort out my psychological issues, then I can relax and the life I was always meant to be living can begin. 
The person mired in this mentality believes that the reason she doesn't feel fulfilled and happy is that she hasn't yet managed to accomplish certain specific things. When she does so, she imagines, she'll feel in charge of her life and be the master of her time. Yet in fact, the way she's attempting to achieve that sense of security means she'll never feel fulfilled, because she's treating the present solely as a path to some superior future state, and so the present moment won't ever feel satisfying in itself. Even if she does get her workload under control or meet her soulmate, she'll just find some other reason to postpone her fulfilment until later on. Thank you. Thank you so much for reading that. I absolutely suffer from this future-focused <laughs> attitude. And I think this sentence, I might get this tattoo, she's treating the present solely as a path to some superior future state. I want to get into that, but I'm assuming you have also suffered from this future-focused <laughs> attitude. <laughs> yes, it may or may not be clear from a quick excerpt, but I hope it's clear from the book as a whole that all of this is me giving the advice that I needed to hear. And sort of the process of writing this book was the process of figuring out how I felt I, I needed to reconsider my own relationship to time. And so, yes, absolutely. And still, to some extent, to this day, I resonate with this completely. Well, starting at the beginning, we are obviously so distracted and concerned with recording and photographing every second of our life. In your example, Steve Taylor, the psychologist, discusses people videoing the Rosetta Stone. What did you learn in the course of writing the book, researching for the book? What did you learn about our avoidance of the present moment? I think one of the things that is so interesting to me about this phenomenon is the, the range of different ways that we do this and how many of those ways of avoiding the present moment really feel, they feel virtuous. They often don't feel like you don't know you're kind of wasting time in the moment that you're doing them. It's not like certain activities that we all do engage in where in the back of your mind, you know, you're just frittering away an hour or something. All sorts of things that feel very productive, very accomplished, very virtuous and diligent can also be ways of avoiding the present. And it's maybe worth just saying first why I think we do that. Mm. This is not a, a an insight that's brand new to me. I think it goes all the way back in, in philosophy and, and psychoanalysis and lots of traditions. But I think it is deeply uncomfortable for people to confront the fact that, you know, this is it, that they have this short amount of time, that their lives are finite. And if they are going to make meaning or find happiness or make a contribution, whatever it is, you really have to do it now, or at some point you're going to be having to do it now. Um, and that you can't postpone it indefinitely to the point at which you've got everything sorted out. You're on top of all the tasks on your to-do list or you're in, you finally feel ready because you're kind of never going to finally feel ready. Yeah. And somebody who sort of resists starting an important creative project and decides to spend the whole time just scrolling through social media instead, it's kind of obvious that that person is failing to face the music in some way. But what's less obvious is that you can be, as I was, you know, totally into time management techniques, totally into organizing your your life really rigorously. Uh, you can spend your days getting through huge numbers of tasks and crossing all those items off. And that too can be a way of of sort of putting off the real meaning of life into the future for this reason of emotional avoidance, because it's more comfortable that way. But it's very tricky for those of us sort of raised to be 
diligent workers and who do well at school and all this and get rewarded for getting good exam results and all, all that stuff. It's it's very hard, I think, to see the ways in which we can be resisting the present moment because it feels like we're doing something that we're supposed to be doing. Yes. And I think you've just brought up something really interesting about how it's hard to decipher what what is avoidant behavior and what, what isn't. As you said, if you're scrolling on your phone, you know you're wasting time, maybe pr- procrastinating. But other times, yeah, it could be something for me, for example, when I wanted to get much more kind of rooted in the present moment, I was reading a lot about mindfulness. I was doing a lot of meditation on meditation apps, listening to, you know, John Kabat-Zinn on doing his masterclass. And then I realized that I wasn't even kind of being present with that. That was just another, um, (laughs) I don't know, another kind of course I was trying to be perfect at. And you can even sort of fail at, at improving yourself within self-improvement oh definitely and i think that the sort of meditation and mindfulness world is especially susceptible to this precisely because it feels like well at least i'm not doing that right at least i am working on being present in the moment so it's even harder to see that like any practice like like any activity it can be co-opted into this this mindset of not really being here now putting all your all the value of life into some sort of moment of truth in the future. I think it's a version of what gets called in meditation and other circles, you know, uh, gets called spiritual bypassing. This idea of using spirituality to sort of avoid certain issues that you, in yourself, that, you know, might be useful to talk to a therapist about or to journal about or something, because you think that what you're actually doing is you're sort of getting rid of all of that and you're just penetrating straight through to the the very moment of reality and uh, and that this is enlightenment. But, you know, I don't think it's to undermine or question the value of a lot of those practices to say that they can be corralled into this project of avoidance, because I think basically anything can. Mm. So just kind of unpicking that a bit more, taking you as a specific example, through writing the book and, and, and noticing your habits, was there something specific specific that you did with time that was for a future benefit? It's interesting to consider the question in that way because I just want to say like, well, everything, right? Everything. It was the sort of, it was the basic stance of, and to some extent it remains so, but it's changed a lot. Uh, it was just the basic stance of my relationship with time was how to best use this next hour. And I think the very question of use, this is a little bit tricksy because obviously I do have this phrase how to use it in the subtitle of this book. But there's something in the very notion of a use relationship that sort of engages in this future focus, in this future outcome orientation, because that's what using something means, really. And I don't think that's sort of inherently wrong. And I'm certainly not suggesting, let alone am I an exemplar of, you know, the idea that we could be completely present in the moment and not try to use time for any future goals ever. That would be a very strange way to be. But I think I was over-invested in it in a very serious way such that, you know, I mean, an example that springs to mind when I was was on the staff of The Guardian and I was writing a lot of features that would be quite long, but they would be on quite a fast turnaround. So I'd have a couple of days to sort of understand some new issue that was in the news and then write 2000 words about it and having talked to some experts, et cetera, et cetera. And I was continually telling myself that I was going to 
figure out how to do this properly. I was going to um, sort of spend time cultivating a, a network of experts to talk to. I was going to read a whole bunch of books that would feed my creativity and help me think of ideas. And then I was going to be the kind of person who could really write features in a very accomplished way. Meanwhile, I just had to do this one because the deadline was the day after tomorrow, right? And it would always be that the thing I was doing right now was not the one that really counted. And I was like, okay, not to worry. This one, I guess, is again, not going to be my my uh, finest hour. Oh, and this one isn't either because it's due tomorrow. You know. So you would never get to this alleged stage of being a highly accomplished feature writer. Now, the irony, of course, is that this was my training to get better at being that kind of a of a writer. And I think some of what I produced then was actually pretty good. So it's not necessarily antithetical to creating good things. But for a long time, my psychology was that I was not able to sort of enjoy it because I was constantly thinking that the next one was going to be when I finally had the time, attention and focus and skills to really make it come together. And that makes everything you actually do in life feel like a little bit shoddy, a little bit substandard Mm. in comparison to this thing that you never actually do in life, which when you put it like that, I hope it's obvious why it's kind of a kind of a dumb way to go through life if mm. you can avoid it. I guess sort of wrapped up in everything you're saying is perfectionism. Um, would you say you were a perfectionist? You know, the, the, the perfect you who was going to write these articles and in the most perfect way, that, that was around the corner, that was coming because it's something to strive for, to just be brilliant. Well, yeah, and because you don't have to it's more comforting in a way to think like I am soon going to achieve perfection than to consider that, you know, this is it, that this is what life is. This is the stuff of life right now. Yes, absolutely. I've, I feel quite strongly about this term perfectionist. I think I absolutely was and remain a sort of recovering one. It's a very troublesome term because I think a lot of people are sneakily proud of calling themselves perfectionists. Mm. It just implies you you, know, you just can't help but produce brilliant things and hold yourself to high standards. Oh, wow. What a terrible affliction to have, you know? And then <laughs> I remember being told about interviews for university that if you were asked about your greatest flaw, you should always say that you're a perfectionist because it's like not really a flaw at all. It's like, gosh, poor shucks. You know, I'm just, I, turns out I'm a, a perfectionist. I don't think about it in those terms these days. I think I have those tendencies strongly, but I don't think there's anything sneakily great about them. I think that the kind of perfection that I'm talking about here, and I sort of unpack this at much greater length in the book, but it's not just producing things at a high standard, which is great to aim for and wonderful if you have the ability to do. It is this kind of absolute level of mastery over your time or absolute level of success in your accomplishments, whatever it is. It, it's something that isn't possible for humans, right? It's a kind of perfection that would mean escaping reality to achieve. And it's, I think it's basically 100% an impediment to a meaningful life and indeed an accomplished one, right? Because what happens is you, you hold back from doing things that matter in the world because you sense or you discover that they're never as perfect as your as your fantasy of how they could be, or you refrain from committing to relationships because you only want the great side of that and not the difficult or vulnerable side of it. You sort of endlessly postpone, as we're talking about, you know, the when I finally mindset, you sort of endlessly postpone 
just being able to savor where you are because you want to be doing it from this position of having finally got things sorted out. And it's a kind of final achievement that it's just not compatible with being a material human in the real world with an absence of total control over events or over other people or even over your own moods. Um, so yeah, the things we can imagine and think about are systematically always going to be more perfect than the things we can bring into reality. And I actually think that's really liberating because when you see that it's systematic and it's built in, then you don't have to worry that the reason your piece of writing wasn't as good as your perfect vision of it. You don't have to worry that that's because you lack the skill or the self-discipline or something. It's just like, no, it, it mm. was never going to be. Yeah, I share a lot of what you've said and it's taken me a long time not to wear being a perfectionist as a badge of honor. It's kind of one of those things I, I said like, oh God, I'm a perfectionist, but I really, I was <laughs> bragging about being a hard worker and wanting right. things to be great. And now I personally, I don't know if this is relatable, but it kind of comes with a really ugly dose of, rage as well when other when it's easy to look at other people not being up to scratch oh you don't want it to be perfect then as opposed to accepting that the situation isn't perfect I mean having kids has been really useful for that like it's gonna be <laughs> yes. messy and everything's gonna go wrong even though I booked the perfect restaurant or whatever and you <laughs> can't go around angry at everybody else for not playing by your the rules that you set up for yourself that don't that don't work anyway <laughs> yeah, no, that is totally relatable. I mean, I I think I slightly target the rage inwards more than outwards. People vary in their personalities. But yes, I know exactly that sort of general emotional tone you're referring to. Uh, <laughs> yeah, it's so funny because like who on earth thought that reality was going to obey your little plan that you'd drawn up in your notebook that morning? I mean, wh why on earth should it? <laughs> yeah, I always say to my partner, I prefer planning a holiday than being on one. <laughs> Yeah, yeah, we definitely have some personality overlaps here. Right? <laughs> I told you, you wrote the book for me. Um, so, well, how do we learn to tolerate the messiness of the present moment? I mean, there are a million answers to this, but just to sort of hit on one of them that, that means a lot to me and has worked a lot for me is just, it really is a question of a perspective shift. I'm not saying there aren't specific, you know, tips and techniques that we can talk about, but it it is just a question of seeing what's happening here understanding a little bit about the facts of the situation that we've been discussing here these last few minutes and just seeing that like, yeah, that, that's going to lead to some discomfort and 99 times out of hundred, if you can sort of stay with the activity anyway, stay with the present moment anyway, that discomfort is totally tolerable, almost embarrassingly tolerable most of the time, right? It's not, obviously there are individual moments that we can experience in life that are absolutely agonizing, of course. But, you know, the discomfort that I feel when I'm grappling with a hard piece of writing or something, it really doesn't kill you. You know, you 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 really do begin to see by sort of leaning into it a little bit more that it's fine. I really like what Cal Newport, who wrote the book Deep Work, what he has to say about writer's block, which is just that writer's block is just the feeling most of the time of what it feels like to write things, right? To, to, like, to not know what you should put in the next sentence. That's just called writing something. <laughs> now, you might, <laughs> I don't want to speak in a sort of way that is exclusive only to people who do a lot of writing in their lives, but obviously you hope for those times of flow and you get them sometimes. But 
if you set it up as, you know, the moment I feel some discomfort around what I'm doing, then something's gone wrong, then you are just making a lot a lot harder for yourself because that discomfort is kind of a built-in aspect of this situation. And it often comes from the fact that you are encountering your limitations and your limited ability to control how the experience is going to go. And so, yeah, I just think being a bit open to that discomfort and then realizing that most of the time you can totally easily hang out with it and carry on doing what you were doing is that is a pretty useful realization. Yeah. I mean, I certainly felt reading the book, it suddenly occurred to me quite late in the day, but (laughs) it really did occur to me that kind of something goes a bit wrong and you feel discomfort every day. Right. (laughs) So um, that perfect flow feeling or that sort of state, superior state we dream of, it's not, it's not the stuff of Monday to Friday every, every week, is it? No, and it doesn't even, it's not even a, I agree. And I also think it's, it's not even a council of resignation to point it out, right? I don't think we're even saying here that life is a bit less good than you might've thought. I think it's just as meaningful, those, those times that they are not as pleasant, but they are just as much a form of being engaged with, with reality and with your life. What you just said then about the dailiness of this makes me think about a psychotherapist who's, I quote, couple of times in the book called Bruce Tift, who, um, this isn't what I quote him as saying in the book, but he, he said in an, in, an interview once, and I really loved this uh, observation, that he no longer experiences any problems in his marriage whatsoever, <laughs> but only because he no longer defines experiencing emotional disturbance as a problem. He just expects it as just part of the dance of relating to another person. So in other words, you can be kind of a bit wound up by the other person the person you live with without that being a problem, right? There's sort of two layers here. There's whether it feels super fun or not in the moment. And then there's whether that's a problem in the mm. sense of something that ought to be, needs to be got rid of for life to be going successfully. And, you know, the usual caveat, of course, there are some people in terribly toxic relationships who need to get out of them. Absolutely. But when I just think about the challenges of living with another person and the way you sort of inevitably push each other's buttons now and again, it's sort of an additional extra to define that as something absolutely terrible that you can't possibly cope with rather than just understanding it as all part of the sort of fascinating challenge of, uh, of being alive. Mm, that's really interesting. I think, yeah, being reactive to stuff um it's very turbulent it really comes back on on us but I I had this example where when I was reading your book um there was some leftovers from dinner the night before and I woke up in the morning really excited that I was gonna have a really decent lunch at home um it was a vegetable curry it was in the bowl and I was about to heat it up and my husband's elbow knocked it and it landed on the floor and smashed everywhere and because I was reading your book I was just like it's okay. I really, all I've thought about was eating this. That's all I thought about for three hours. But I think I can get my head around the fact that this was just an accident. And I'm lucky that there's other food in the house. And I don't have to go ape shit. <laughs> and it's, interest, it's just interesting how just breathing and taking a moment to really see a situation means that you don't have to have this explosive reaction 
but it's the sort of breath you need before the knee-jerk response. Yeah, yeah. No, and for me, I don't know if this is exactly what you're saying, so tell me if not, but for me, the distinction in that moment is between the negative of having splinters of crockery all over the floor and not getting to eat some food you were looking forward to eating. That's a that's a real moment in, in a day of minor highs and lows. That's a real sort of minor low. Not, yeah. There's no point pretending. You don't need to pretend that you've sort of meditated yourself into a state where that's totally great or anything. But the idea that this additional idea that like your plans for how things were going to unfold have been subverted by events and that this is terrible. That's just an additional, like you, you can, that's actually possible to let go of that, I think. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So what's the relationship for you between this future focus mindset and anxiety? Because having our head in the future and trying to control it, I think for most people, they'd say that that comes with a dose of anxiety. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think maybe by one definition, you could say anxiety is this attempt to exert control over the future from the vantage point of the present and constantly running into the fact that like, you can't do that, right? Anxiety obviously has some specific clinical definitions, but just thinking about like worry. I think when I am worried about something or caught in a loop of of worrying, there's something there where it feels like it feels proactive in a way worry it feels like it's almost as if you feel that you ought to worry in order to try to have things go the way you you think you need them to go and that it would be sort of risky or dangerous to sort of just let go of the worry there's something almost comforting about that sort of ruminative worry and i think what's going on is that yeah the future just isn't the kind of thing we get to control And so any psychological attempt to sort of reassure yourself about how things are going to be a day from now, a week from now, or even a minute from now is ultimately always going to run up against this fact that you can't know. And I I write in the book, you know, about coming from a family of fairly compulsive planners and people who like to leave many hours to get to the airport so that they don't miss their flight and things like this. And it's sort of a fool's errand to, to live in that way just because you can never be completely certain that you'll get to the airport on time, right? Even if you leave 20 hours, you can't actually be certain. And so there's always that tiny little gap between your confidence about how things are going to unfold and and reality. And that's where the worry, the worry works its way in. So I think, yeah, I mean, hypothetically, I'm not saying I can do this, but I think hypothetically, if we could be completely at peace with whatever happened next and next and next in each moment, then I don't see how anxiety could continue in that situation. That would be that would be the definition of the opposite of anxiety, I think. Mm. I think where I had uh, resistance or maybe some defensiveness around some of the ideas is as someone who's kind of mocked and sneered at by my family for being such a planner and controlling everything. A part of me does want to sort of stand up on a chair and scream and shout and say yeah but how would the kids go to their dentist appointment then well you tell me how you have got to that restaurant and got that table in time because I called the restaurant months ahead because I knew that it would be different you know you you feel like can someone also please recognize that the people whose heads are in the future do get shit done yeah totally totally so firstly I don't think you even need to say that you felt defensive it could just be that I'm wrong right I mean that's legitimate (laughs) but anyway assuming for now that I'm not wrong in a sort of straightforward way, I feel a bit of that too, because I think I'm definitely the planner in my 
marriage, for example. And, you know, uh, sometimes when I'm challenged on the degree to which I like to do that, I find myself observing that there are various things that wouldn't have happened at all if I hadn't had that attitude. I think that a lot of this goes to the why, that's sort of the motivation for doing things, because it's certainly the case that someone who really resists planning and laughs at people who organize their days and their and their weeks and their months, you know, they too can be involved in this kind of emotional avoidance. I think that it's also true that people who resist making plans and who sort of laugh and mock at the planners amongst us can also be engaged in a different version of this kind of avoidance, right? They sort of want to, they want to sort of imagine that they have no responsibility to that kind of planning or scheduling and that they can just sort of not face the fact that at some point you do have to make plans and you do have to organize things if you want things to happen. Uh, so I think they can both be, you know, the, the kind of anxiety that needs to know how the future is going to unfold is sort of mirrored by this, this kind of avoidant refusal to play a role in how the future <laughs> unfolds. And I think in both cases, you know, it's all totally forgivable and understandable, but if you wanted to sort of move in a positive direction, I guess it would be to be able to use planning for the future as a tool when it was necessary, right? To pick it up in order to book the restaurant or book the flight, whatever, and then put it down again and be back in the moment and not need things to turn out the way you plan them in order to not feel anxious about them. So it's a kind of a a subtle thing, right? Because mm. I totally agree with you. That's like someone needs to make that make the booking, <laughs> but I don't think it's as necessary for someone to be sort of anxiously waiting on tenterhooks to see if things work out as planned. That's a sort of there's something different going on there. So I don't think you know. I don't think any of this should be interpreted as as the case against ever thinking about the future. It's it's a, it's the question of sort of trying to get a sort of reassurance from the future that is at issue. I think. Mm. And I guess also planning can go into a level of overdrive. You do need to book, uh, you know, the flight or the dentist appointment. But then if you've done that, have permission to stop. Whereas I don't know about <laughs> you, but doing one thing, five things on the list makes me suddenly go, well, let's just make the list full of 20 things. And then, OK, <laughs> so I've done the 20 things. Well, I'll add another 20. And it's like, God, you, you're allowed to stop today because you, you did the most important things. And that's cool. Stop. <laughs> Yes, absolutely. Right. If you book the train journey, you don't necessarily need to book everything you're going to do when you're at your destination, right? You can Partly it's to do with having the self-trust, I think, that when the next bit of the future arrives, you're going to have the the resources at that point to make more plans and to figure things out, right? You don't need to get it or you don't need to get all your ducks in a row right now mm. on the out of some idea that you're somehow not going to be able to manage competently in the future, so you've got to get it all listed out in the present. I, I think that's an interesting part of it too, sort of the sort of self-trust element, I guess. Mm. And if, you know, relaxation isn't round the corner once the inbox is empty and all the to-do list is ticked off, if it's not in the future, where is it? <laughs> it's quite I mean, a big I, question. <laughs> yeah, big though, one. isn't the answer kind of obvious as well? I mean, it has to be here. It has to be now. And it has to be in the presence of the unfinished to-do list and the not yet planned things about that are still need to be sorted out for next month or, or in the presence of the emails that need answering and the people who you know are waiting for things that you've promised you'll 
get them and you haven't done yet. So it has to be sort of in the midst of, of all that and not not only in this point in the future where everything is is all straightened away and, and sorted out because it never comes. I'm reminded of a something I read by uh, Laura Vanderkam, who writes about time management, especially in a family setting, who who talks about the various people she spoke to, mainly, I think there were mainly American mothers, who said things like, I just can't relax until all the toys are tidied away. And in this particular mode, she was sort of administering a bit of tough love and saying, well, they Actually, yes, you can, right? I mean, not to undermine the importance of the of the sort of burdens that fall on people, especially mothers, to do sort of more things than it makes sense to try to fit into a day. But maybe you can actually relax while there's Lego strewn across the floor. Maybe maybe that connection that you've made in your mind between having everything sorted out and being able to relax, maybe that's where you could work on sort of loosening that connection rather than on getting even more efficient and effective at clearing everything away. Mm. I know for myself, I don't know about if you've got an example, but I really hurt my neck earlier this year. And so I had no choice, but after however long on the laptop, I'd have to just drop to the floor. And the osteopath said, you know, you must roll up a towel and lie with it horizontally across your back. And just every single day, multiple times a day, I would lie on my mat. And I just felt like a different person and then as soon as the net got better I was like oh I'll stop I'll stop that <laughs> yeah. and so have you found things that even though the habit's hard to keep up if you do them you are just a calmer being that week yes absolutely one that springs to mind certainly the thing I've most consistently managed to do in this kind of world of helpful and healthy habits over the last few years is morning pages writing on three sides of a narrow ruled notebook early in the morning before our son wakes up you know I haven't done it consistently because sometimes he's been waking up at five o'clock and that's a challenge but that process of just sort of writing whatever comes to my mind whatever's on my mind and doing it for three pages not not to sort of doing it to that kind of arbitrary Mm. stopping point I'm very often not particularly feeling like it. And usually that's what I end up writing about for the first few lines, right? That I just don't feel like doing it. But it's really, there's a really strong connection between doing that and the day sort of going better and, and more smoothly. I think um, I think to some extent, I'm sort of quite a bit more introverted than I may have previously realized, or I may be getting more introverted. I don't know. But making sure that I get that sort of time, it tends to take sort of 40, 45 minutes usually to to do this, making sure that I get that time to sort of be in relationship with myself, I suppose. I think it makes me much better at being in relationship with other people (laughs) during the day. So I even, you know, this is probably not a good piece of advice, but I even get up a little bit earlier than I probably should from the point of view of sleep needs to make sure that that happens because it just seems so worth it. How did the lockdown and the pandemic affect this? Because obviously this is so much about controlling the future. And I think we all realised with the pandemic that was just so obvious we couldn't control anything. Do you think that's sort of helped people feel more rooted and grounded in in the day? I mean, I suppose it depends so much on what people experience it in their circumstances in lockdown. So maybe just just for you. Yeah, I mean, I think lockdown and the pandemic have had all sorts of very important impact on our understanding and experience of time. And I get into those in the book in in different ways. But 
it's all been so different, right? I remember early on in lockdown, people reading things about how you were supposed to use all the extra time that you now, now had. And they just closed the preschools in New York where we lived at the time. And I was like, hang on, <laughs> I have much less time than I had before. How can you possibly be talking to me about how to use the extra time? And so it was experienced, obviously, very differently. But yeah, I think it just, it made it harder to ignore certain truths, didn't it? Both about how much control we have over unfolding events and about how little time we have for those of us who were sort of stretched further by lockdown rather than given sort of too much free time. There's a sermon, I think, that C.S. Lewis preached early in the in the early days of the Second World War, where he makes this point that it's not that life has suddenly become uncertain with the advent of, of the war. It's that life is always completely uncertain. And you, for long periods of time, you get to ignore it. You get not to focus on it. And then suddenly things happen that remind you that you are, as he puts it, always, you know, on the edge of a precipice. And that sort of uncertainty, the fact that it's there all the time and that we've just sort of had it brought to our attention, it's obviously very hard and uncomfortable. And in the case of a pandemic, it's going to result in really horrifying suffering and bereavement for some section of the population. But there is something, is it liberating? Is it relaxing? There's something good about seeing the way that things were are and always were, and mm. you've just been ignoring it. There's something about the fact that we are all in this boat together in one sense, which is that, you know, not even the president of the United States knows what's going to happen tomorrow. And here we all are in this kind of incredibly vulnerable place on the leading edge of the of the moment, you know, moving into the future, completely vulnerable to events. At least you don't have to struggle to not to get away from that situation if it's totally universal. You know, at least you at least you can sort of just a little bit relax into that into that feeling of being on the edge of a precipice. I mean, I'm not sure I'm using the right words here, but there's something about seeing that that I think it's good to see, given that it is always already anyway true. Were you inspired to write so much about looking at reality and accepting it? Because so many, certainly productivity books, sort of suggest the opposite to acceptance. There's, there's, there's work to do. There's pull your sleeves up and try this. Get up earlier. Have different to-do lists. Have the three things that you've got to do a day. And no, you know, this, there's so many bite-sized content and the tips and tricks and the toolbox and the mental health toolbox. It's like, I don't think with depression it is try these five things. It's just not how it works. But there's this idea, isn't there, of kind of follow these three things and then you're fine. And I I love that your book isn't that in any way. Did your style of writing and what you were grappling with, did it come out of feeling frustrated by all the, yeah, sort of idea that the book can tell you how to live your life? Yes, in part. And it also came from my own experience of using all that information and advice on my own little agenda of trying to not accept reality and uh, and escape the, the truths of the situation, as it were. You know, a lot of those time management techniques, and I'm sure a lot of those things that are in the bite-sized mental health advice, they're perfectly good. It's not. It's not like, don't do them. It's not that they don't have some wisdom in them. It's that if you co-opt them all into this scheme of running away from the moment and getting to this future place of perfection. And that's a that co-opting is something that is definitely encouraged by some of the less wise productivity gurus and people writing in this this space. 
that's when it's a problem. And yeah, I, I write somewhere in the book that, you know, I just have never encountered any self-help technique that is anywhere near as effective as just facing a little bit more the way things really are. So much of, I think, our suffering in life, but certainly mine, has come from not the problem that I'm facing in that moment, but the notion that things should be completely different than they are, that I shouldn't even have this problem, that I've probably done something wrong to end up with this set of problems, that I haven't quite justified my existence on the planet unless I get rid of this problem and you know do 50 other things on my to-do list by the end of the day. It's just a kind of stance that is guaranteed to make everything worse. Whereas, you know, having a few problems to address yourself to in the day is that's not necessarily a problem in itself. So yeah, I think it's it's frustration with how this this these messages are discussed and how many books are sort of laundry lists of like, oh, you should spend more time in nature. Oh, you should nurture your social relationships more. Like, yes, you should, but you know that. <laughs> mm-hmm. I think the problem is not that you don't know that. The problem is that we are we divert so much of our time and energy into these sort of impossible quests to get on top of everything. Mm-hmm. And that if we could sort of ease off from that a bit it would be very obvious that you could go for a walk in the park right now or spend a bit more time talking with the people you care about the most. Last few questions. Did this examination of future-focused mind versus, you know, accepting where you are today, did it sort of change where you seek fulfilment or where, where what gives you fulfilment? I think so. Whether I can sort of express how is another question. I mean, Certainly the whole process of writing the book kind of, that was the process of discovering what I felt and what I needed to hear and what advice I needed to follow. So really, I don't think you can authentically or sincerely write a book like this unless you're willing to sort of be changed by the process. It wasn't that I sort of got my life totally sorted out and then generously put it down in a book for everyone else to learn from. It was definitely like the writing of the book was the therapy. And yeah, I'm actually kind of at an interesting, well, it's interesting to me, <laughs> maybe not anyone else. I'm interested. I'm in an interesting point with all that now because the book is out. I have been getting all sorts of fascinating and uplifting reactions to it, and interacting with people about it, and talking to people like you about it, and you know, doing bits of writing around it. And then there is a real sense of like, okay, well, this kind of long-term goal has been accomplished. It's an interesting moment to sort of not, maybe not immediately decide on the next thing that is going to dominate the next five years of my life and I'm going to sort of structure my whole life around the achievement of or something like that. It's a, it's a, Mm. I'm not sure I have much to say about the content of this right now. I've got a few irons in the fire and a few thoughts to be sure. But um, yeah, it's a, it is that pause in a way for me right, right now. Cause uh, yeah, who knows? That's exciting. <laughs> Love a pause. <laughs> yeah, no, it's um, very exciting, but it's yeah. uh, it's a little bit unnerving in a in a in a kind of a way as well. Yeah. Has your partner or family noticed a change in you? <laughs> I always think that these these kinds of questions should be put to my wife rather than me because yeah, I know on. that I was a huge <laughs> asshole to live with for at least a few months of the process of writing this book. I have acknowledged and I hope apologized for that. And, you know, then on a more sort of jovial level, she often hears me talk about something that's going on in my work or life and 
jokingly suggests that she knows a book I ought to I ought to consult <laughs> that has some uh, useful insights on this matter. And I think that's... Uh, I think you're going to get that a lot that, yeah, <laughs> for the yeah, rest of I, your life. I, I think so. And fair enough, right? Because I do yeah. stand by what's in this book and I don't pretend to be a perfect exemplar yes, of it and at it's, all. And it's a daily work. It doesn't... Yeah, there's no yeah. magic spell, but yeah. No, a- absolutely. And, uh, you know, it's said, she says it in that in that spirit as well i i think so though i think i think i am uh, a much calmer person than i was a bunch of years ago it's always a little bit difficult to tell because i think we do probably take on challenges to meet however far we've grown as people right so i think you're always sort of my experience i'm always sort of pushing myself a little bit i'm finding myself at a new edge each time so it's not like you sort of get it all sorted out and then it's plain sailing it's like you know just to give you sort of too much information you spent, I spent my, you know, twenties as a sort of total commitment phobe when it came to relationships. So you don't have one, one kind of problem you don't have in your life is the sort of interesting challenges of being in a long-term relationship. Then you sort of get over that commitment phobia. So then you're sort of launching yourself into that new world of challenges, which is committed relationships or, you know, I was never certain that I would ever become a parent and then I did and so it's not that it gets easier because I'm a bit older it's like no that that, then that new phase of challenge starts there Mm. you get pretty good at writing articles so then you decide you're going to write a book right you sort of constantly (laughs) you're constantly naturally I think we sort of up the the game so Mm. uh yeah you you can do it a bit more calmly and I hope Mm. a bit more in a way that works more harmoniously with other people than I used to do any of this but you're always sort of going up to a new difficulty level <laughs> mm, that's so, so it's hard to know what where, where you've got to really yeah and it's so true with parenting my eldest is now 10 and gonna start secondary school and it's like but I've only just worked out how to be a parent <laughs> to a primary school kid I don't right. know how we do phones and social media and walking to school on your own and right going to bed later I, I finally learned weaning and nappies and yes exactly it's so exactly. unfair <laughs> yes no absolutely it's um what's that saying like experience is a teacher that always delivers its lessons mm. too late or whatever right you you know exactly what you need to do just at the moment that, that is no longer <laughs> disappeared in your life yeah, yeah exactly oh well thank you so much this book i absolutely loved it do you meditate out of interest i do but at a but I deliberately didn't bring that up when I talked about morning pages because I am not a dutiful daily meditator in the same way that I am pretty dutiful and diligent about writing those pages. So I'm a bit Mm -hmm. too sporadic. How about you? Yeah, I I definitely got into it through the 10% Happier app. I don't know if you know 10% Happier and the the podcast. Um, Really good podcast and really good meditation. So I did start during the pandemic and I guess like everything once you find your person once you find a few people who seem to really speak to whatever it is you're going through there was there was one I think it was on insight timer that app there was one for kind of tired stressed out mothers who can't bear homeschooling it was like oh my god just (laughs) five minutes of this woman talking to me and really 
seeing me in that moment. <laughs> it just transformed everything. It's funny how much we don't want to feel alone with stuff. That's what's so great about your book. It's kind of like, yes, yes, I feel that too. <laughs> and then something happens when you see, um, I guess it's pretty obvious, but it's so true, isn't it? Once someone else also has experienced what you're going through, it, it sort of feels easier and kind of less, um, less huge and like it can't be reduced. <laughs> you're totally right. And it, apart from anything else, it sort of means you maybe this is my particular screw up, but you don't have to think like, oh, I'm doing something uniquely wrong to be going through this. <laughs> because yes. no, it's, it's pretty near universal. Thank you for listening to Paige. If you've got a moment, I'd love it if you could rate and review this episode to help me get the word out and keep the show going. You can also find great photos and information about next episodes over on Twitter and Instagram at Abbyholic. Oh, and please subscribe. Did I say that? Please subscribe on Apple, Spotify, wherever you get your podcasts. Page is a Good Tape production. Produced by me, Abby Hollick. Original music by Paddy Jervis and Rob Sell for Torch and Compass. Sound engineer support from Hunter Charlton and Chris Sharp. Graphic design from Tim Hughes. Thanks, team. <laughs> <laughs>